Welcome to the Preach and Persuade podcast. My name is Sam Parada, and I am your host, and I'm continuing in this series on Common Grace, so hopefully you have had time to listen to the first two episodes. Episode one in this mini-series was just simply an introduction on Common Grace, specifically comparing it to what we would call special grace or saving grace or a particular grace. Uh, episode two, I dove more specifically into the Noahic Covenant, which is really the the beginning point of our, our formulation on uh, what common grace is. And that's because the Noahic covenant is a, is a covenant made generally, or you could say universally, to, to all living creatures, including the animals. Uh, we see before the flood that the, you know, the intentions of man's heart is only evil continually, and he does nothing but do evil. And so God brings judgment on the entire planet. And he he kills every human being except Noah and his family. So eight people survive. Now the issue with that is that after the flood, the, the nature of man's heart is is still the same. The nature of man's man's heart is still evil. Uh, and so what the Noahic covenant does is, uh, in a sense, it it starts to restrain man's sinful nature so that he doesn't go where where his heart wants to go. But it also provides the really the 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 stability in this world for man to continue to to multiply and increase and and spread around the world. It, it gives him the opportunity to actually survive and 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 reproduce and live. And obviously, we know that that it's incredibly important because. God raises up uh, a people, the the nation of Israel, and from Israel comes the Messiah, the the one person who is going to save um, sinners from their from the wrath of God, and and that that is, that is obviously Christ, uh, uh, the inca- incarnate God of the universe. So common grace certainly benefits the non-believer. One God promises not to flood the earth again so he withholds his judgment it's it's a type of patience he's being patient with the non-believing world uh and he's not going to just all of all of a sudden destroy the entire world like he did um in the time of noah but two uh, spiritually it it has significance for the church and for the elect uh common grace and we could say the noahic covenant uh, again, allows the church to ar- eventually arise, and in an, in, a, in a sense, it complements uh, the new covenant in the blood of Christ. And so, as we continue to think about, let's say, the means of common grace. So, connected to the Noahic covenant, we we looked at a few means that come from the Noahic covenant. Means of grace. Uh, one of them was that God put the fear of man in animals. You have eight people coming off the ark, and you have all these wild animals, and it certainly could have been the case that a tiger or a lion or a bear or whatever decided to make a meal of Noah and his family. It's like, man, I've been I've been on this ark for a while now, eating eating some pretty uh, small meals, and man, these uh, these human beings sure look tasty. It, it would not have been hard for some of the animals just to make a meal of Noah and his family. They didn't, they didn't have any guns. They didn't have any like major weapons i mean good grief like that could have been the end of the human race at that point right there but no god put the fear of man in in the beast in the wild animals really so that man could proliferate and spread across earth spread across the earth so 
That is a means of grace. Um, the big one, though, that we ended on, which is really important, is that God commanded the death penalty. God commanded capital punishment. God commanded that, hey, if a human being murders another human being, that person needs to be put to death because that murderer killed an image bear, somebody made in the image of God. And to dishonor God's image like that requires blood, requires death. And that that is a gracious thing. Somebody who murders uh, certainly is to the point to where they they are they are given over to their to their fleshly desires and, and given over to rage and they they will be a detriment to society and to the proliferation of humanity on earth. So to stop them and put them to death is a good thing. And it's implied that this is also the institution of government. Government begins at this point because there needs to be order to this. Uh, there needs to be authority. Uh, to do this. It can't just be out of revenge and rage. It can't just be chaotic. Um, and then everybody everybody would just start putting each other to death. Oh, you killed my brother. I'm going to go kill you. Uh, and then the brother, the person you just killed comes after you. I mean, it's just back and forth and everybody would end up being dead. So there needs to be order to this. There needs to be structure. And that's why we get from this, the institution of government. And so we're going to flesh that out later. Uh, I think there's a lot to be said about the nature of government and the purpose of government. So much more to be said about it, uh, especially in light of our current cultural context and cultural moment here in America and wherever you are in the world. Um, yeah, we all have questions about government. When are they going too far? When do I submit to government? When do I not? Uh, what is what is truly their purpose? Uh, and so there's lots to be said yet about government and there's lots to be said um yet about how common grace operates in this world by and through government. Uh, but in this podcast, we're just going to continue on some other, you could say, means of grace before we really get into the government thing. And there's 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 other means. Uh, and I, I, I want to say it like this. Our bodies, our human bodies, and the world that we live in, this earth, and, and the things on this earth, plants, animals, whatever, um, they're built, they're made for common grace. There's, you, you could say it like this, there's a, there's a built-in potential in our bodies and in the world for common grace to be displayed. And to really illustrate this, let's just think for a moment about the fall, the fall of, of man in Genesis 3. Obviously, God commanded Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, Eve was tempted by Satan, she took of the trees, she ate, and she gave some to her husband, and he ate, and then they fell, and sin entered the world. And then God delivers the consequences, the curses for their disobedience. Obviously, we know that, first of all, uh, and the biggest and, and primary curse and, and consequence is death. God had said already that in the day you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. Now, I want to point out just for a moment here, um, though we started our treatment of common grace from the Noahic Covenant, really we see common grace operating right away in, in Genesis 3 here. Um, God said, in the day you eat of this, you shall surely die. But obviously we know that 
they did not die in that moment or in that day. God was gracious with them and allowed them to con- to continue to live. Obviously, he threw them out of the garden so they couldn't eat of the tree of life and live forever, but nonetheless, they didn't die in that moment, and that and that is gracious. That's gracious, and that allowed them to obviously procreate and and continue to uh, be fruitful and multiply on this earth. So we see common grace right there. Uh, but now I want us to pay attention to the rest of the curses, uh, to the to the woman. What does God say? We're, I'm reading out of Genesis 3, starting in verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now, it's implied that before sin entered the world, childbearing wasn't painful. Uh, wasn't that painful. Sure, he, he says, I will multiply your pain. So there must have been probably some pain, but very mild. Uh, it's, it's, it's assumed that it's very mild. And, and, and God, as a curse, is saying, no, I'm going to multiply your pain. And if you were to go back and listen to uh, the episode that Dan and I did on on this this passage as it relates to the nature of manhood and womanhood, you'd see that, okay, the curse is directly connected to the woman's primary role. What's her primary role? To, to bear and rear and nurture children. So the curse is going to um, be associated with, with her role. And so what's the curse? Increased, multiplying her pain in childbearing. And in pain, she is going to bring forth children. And I'm a man, I, I, I will never know that pain. Uh, but from what I've heard, it is, it, it is excruciating. It is out of control. Like it is beyond painful, in- incredibly painful. And so when we think about this curse, uh, for thousands of years, uh, women just had to endure this pain. Uh, but now, today, obviously, chi- <laughs> giving birth is still incredibly painful, uh, but there are, st- there are options now for reducing that pain. And obviously, we know one of them is an epidural, uh, which is, is, is a drug and an anesthetic that, that you know, is injected in your spine that numbs, uh, numbs, you know, below your waist so that you don't feel the pain of, of childbearing as intensely and sometimes really not at all. Uh, and so that right there is really interesting. The, the drugs, the, the anesthetics, the, uh, the chemical compounds that, uh, are compatible with our bodies and kind of going, coming full circle. That is why I said we, we live in a world where our bodies and the world itself is is built for common grace. There's a common grace potential in it. Certainly, I think you could assume that God could have uh, not made plants and other chemicals um, found chemical compounds found in the world. He could have. He could have made those not suitable for human beings. Certainly, we know that some of them are poisonous to human beings and kill human beings, but so many of them are actually good for human beings, like actually working in such a way that that takes away pain, for instance. I mean, good night, like ibuprofen. Like how often do we just pop a couple ibuprofen when we have a headache and the headache goes away? Uh, 
you know, it doesn't go away, but what it does is it it messes with those pain receptors and, and the, the signals uh, aren't sent to the brain that, hey, you're in pain. And so we don't perceive the pain and it's like it doesn't exist. And that's that's an incredible thing. Or think about just going under uh, the anesthetics that put you, you know, knock you out. So you are not a, a, awake when surgery's taking place on you. I mean, my goodness, like if you didn't have that possibility then you really couldn't do many of the surgeries that are done to save people's life like open heart surgery or whatever it might be like you can't be awake for that <laughs> you can't be awake for that and and so you know i uh i don't know this for certain but i've heard and i'm, I'm pretty sure it's true that the guy who actually discovered uh anesthetics uh or the anesthetic use of of certain you know drugs or whatever um, was a Christian, and he had read in 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 Genesis two that God had put Adam to sleep and then took out one of his ribs, and Adam was not awake for that operation. You could say, and so he's like, "Well, uh, well, that's interesting. If 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 God put him to sleep so that he could remove something from his body, like." Should we not be able to do that today as well? And so it kind of, you know, pushed him to discover uh, if there were certainly some drugs that existed in in the world that could that could do that and operate in that way. And certainly we know that that is the case, and that is an amazing thing. So that is just one example: an epidural during pregnancy where the curses of sin, uh, pain in this fallen world, is alleviated. And that's a gracious thing. God gives us plants and other things in this world and, and obviously uh, gives us the, the mental capacity to discover things and to invent things and to create things that alleviate the curses of sin. That's, that's grace. We don't deserve ibuprofen. We don't deserve epidurals. We don't deserve those things. Well, now let's think about Adam. And to Adam he said, verse 17, chapter 3, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Okay, uh, uh, his curse is is comes from stems out of his primary calling. Adam's call to work the ground, to be a worker, to to go out on a mission and cultivate the earth type of thing. Uh, and so, what's the what's the the curse? Well, now the ground is going to be cursed. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So, okay, yes, we all know this. Thorns, thistles, weeds, um, you know, bugs and, and diseases that plants can get that just make it hard to grow crops. And, and again, right away you could say uh, this, was, this was just the curse of sin was operating probably pretty clearly as it was in, in child, the pain and childbearing. Like they did not have back then thousands of years ago, uh, modern technology and modern pesticides and herbicides. Uh, these things didn't exist. Now they existed in the sense of all, all the, all the raw resources were there in the earth to produce such, you know, things. Um, and God, in his grace, gave man the mind that could eventually discover and invent such things. Uh, but again, there's a potential in the world for 
giant machinery and tractors that are guided by satellites. Uh, again, all these chemicals uh, that we can put on our plants to protect them from, from, from pests, to protect them from bugs, to protect them from certain diseases that plants can get. Uh, we can genetically modify crops so that they, they yield more, uh, so that we can feed more people. Uh, we, we have fertilizers that we can put on fields so that they can produce year after year after year and they don't have to take a rest. Like all of that is, is common grace. That's an incredible thing and God built a world for us where that was possible. And so I think that's very interesting. Very interesting. These are again means of common grace that we're, that we're just going through. Um, yeah, modern medicine, modern technology, all of this stuff. Very uh, obvious means of common grace. God did not have to uh, give us drugs that take away pain and take away some of the curses of, of sin. Now, another means of common grace. Now, this is, again, very interesting. If you really, if you really think about it, um, is... You could say it's uh, common grace is seen in genealogy or it's generational. Certain families that you are born into, your genealogy, uh, just brings about, you could say, more grace in your life and more restraint of sin in your life. Who you're born to matters for this. Again, we're talking common grace. So we're not I'm not talking about saving grace. I'm not talking about again being saved from your sin and therefore going to heaven. I'm talking about common grace. So even the non-believers in view here obviously, you can be born into a family as a non-believer to non-believing parents and depending on who your parents are and who their parents are, uh, you will have access to what we might say is more grace, more gracious things. Um, where this is obvious is is okay. One Christian parents. Let's just let's talk about Christian parents for a second here. The child is born into a good Christian household. A household uh, parents who love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their minds, with all their souls, with all their strength. Parents who who uh, you know seek to raise their kids in the fear. An admonition of the Lord, parents who bring their kids to church, parents who have conservative values based on the Bible, parents who love and nurture their kids and educate them and 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 discipline them well. All these things that even if that child does not grow up to one day getting saved, uh, there's still going to be lots of benefit for them, tons of benefit, and they may have been spared many many different you know, sinful behaviors while they were growing up. I mean, if, if, if Christian parents instill in, in their, in their child as they're being raised that sex before marriage is, is a bad thing and will, it will reap, um, incredible consequences in your life, horrible consequences. And this child who may not be a believer decides to not have sex before marriage, but to wait till marriage to experience that and to have children and all these other things like they will they will have so much benefit from that incredible benefit and that's a common grace reality so it doesn't you know they don't even have to be a christian to benefit from 
a good upbringing and good parents. Think about the financial aspect of it. Non-believers. Let's again thinking about thinking about non-believers. Let's say the non-believing couple is wealthy. Uh, you know, maybe they maybe they come from a line, a lineage, a, a genealogy of, of just wealthy people. Maybe they're Maybe their great grandfather started some business, and it's now a Fortune 500 company, and and this family is just set for life. You could say, and they're born into wealth. Think of like Bill Gates' children, born into that wealth. Uh, they will be spared so many, you know, types of suffering in this life. They will never starve. They will never be without clothing or shelter. They have access to all these uh, luxurious things. They have access to the the best foods uh, and the best flavors and the best um, the best entertainment. Whether it be uh, hearing, you know, in person the best singers on earth, uh, viewing the best artwork on earth, uh, traveling to the most beautiful places on earth, all these things they have access to because of who they're who their parents are or what family they're born into and on and on and on and on. And all these things, these are common grace things. Now, this implies that common grace is discriminant. I know that that word is maybe a bad word or whatever, has a lot of bad connotations, but it's, 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 not, it's not equity. It's not totally equal. Yes, we're all under common grace uh, in some measure, any non-believer who takes one more breath is experiencing God's common grace because God has every right in that moment to judge them. And so any breath, any any second where a non-believer isn't burning in hell is common grace. So let's not forget that. But there are some people and some non-believers in this world that are that are that experience more common grace than others. It's not equal. And yeah, we can think about Matthew, Matthew 5, thinking specifically about Matthew 5.45, for he makes his, his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So yes, that that is true, but we obviously know not everybody gets equal amounts of rain. I mean, we just here up in North Dakota, we in Minnesota, we just experienced one of the worst droughts uh, in a long time. In my lifetime, for sure. I've been alive for 25 years and never in my lifetime has there been a drought like we've, that we, like we experienced this, this past summer. I mean, rivers that have always flowed with water by where I grew up were bone dry this year. Never. Have I ever seen that? And some people who are old have never seen that either. So it was an incredible drought. But then in the midst of this drought, there are still pockets where people got ample rain and their crops were lush. And so, yes, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. But sometimes sometimes God chooses to let the rain fall on, on a specific group of people and not the others. And so it doesn't have to be common grace does not have to be and certainly is not indiscriminate in certain ways. Some receive more common grace than others. And this is seen so obviously in genealogy 
and who you're born to and what family you're born into so clearly seen in your upbringing and so clearly seen in your in your natural abilities and talents so even to think about upbringing the child who has parents who stay married and don't get divorced the child who has a good education and is taught history and logic and how to read and how to write and how to think and how to reason and how to argue, that will benefit that child greatly. Uh, The child who's raised in a home where work is valued and everything isn't just given to you for free, that child will be greatly benefited in this world. We can think about Proverbs. It's full of common grace advice. Full of it. Think just about a couple of these these verses in Proverbs. Proverbs fifteen fourteen, slothfulness casts into a deep sleep, and an idle person will suffer hunger. If you're slothful and lazy, you will suffer in this life. If you work hard and are diligent, you are going to reap in this life, and you are not going to starve. So the child who's born into a family who who values work will experience more common grace. It's it's pretty simple. Think of another verse in Proverbs, and this is repeated often in Proverbs. I'll just quote one verse, chapter 23, verse 13. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. That is repeated throughout Proverbs, this idea of d- discipline your child. Discipline him. If you love him, you will discipline him. So... Again, the child born into a family where good discipline is practiced by the parents, there's a lot of common grace that comes from that. That child will be more resilient in life. They'll be more obedient. So many benefits, common grace benefits. You can even think about a child in the womb before they even can make a decision and you know choose right and choose wrong. The mother is putting things into her body that affect the child. Maybe she smokes and she drinks and she affects the development of this child when he or she is in the womb and that affects their life forever. The child who, while in the womb, the mother eats healthfully and well and does not put drugs into her body that are bad, that child will benefit from that. Common grace that's a common grace thing. These, so these are all, again, means of common grace. Now, another one to think about more specifically, I've mentioned it a few times, is education. This is a big one. And our education system is certainly, oh, not in a good, not in a good place right now. Um, a good book to read is Carl Truman's The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self and in that he really traces this sexual revolution, this this sexual crisis that we're experiencing with transgenderism and the LGBTQ community. Traces a lot of these ideologies back to French philosophers, uh, one of them being Rousseau, who's called the professional hypocrite. But Rousseau had this idea that humanity is, is uh, the human being, the individual is born, born good, uh, born free in some some measure, and and that the the institutions of society corrupt 
this this human being. Uh, the human being should be free to do what he wants to do to to gratify his flesh, to gratify his desires in any way he wants. And that is the purpose of life, really. And so Rousseau thought that, say, schools, education systems, churches, any of these institutions that have a fundamental belief that a child is lacking in some way and they need to be instructed and conformed to an ideal. He hated that idea. So so schools, again, historically, as they should be, like this child is lacking knowledge. They do not know things that they need to know. And we are going to teach this child these things that they need to know. And we're going to conform them to an ideal. Same with the church. This person is a sinner. This person has fleshly desires. And this person needs to put off those fleshly desires and put on Christ. So we are going to instruct them in Scripture and what the Bible says, and they are to conform themselves to the image of Christ. That is, that is sanctification. Be conformed to the image of Christ. Conform yourself. You're not what you need to be. Progress in this. So a child who is raised in a household and given an education system that actually like fundamentally understands this reality that they are lacking and they need to be conformed to an ideal is a good thing. That's a common grace thing. But those families and those children that are that are withheld that type of education are going to suffer immensely. And that's what so many children are are experiencing today. They're 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 getting taught garbage. They're not being conformed to an ideal. They're not being taught things that they need to know. Now, schools have become a place not of conformity or conforming to an ideal, but a place to perform. And these are, you can, you can look at these ideas so wonderfully uh, articulated in, in Carl Truman's book. Again, go read that book and he'll flesh this out wonderfully. But the modern education system has become a place to perform a place of safety where I can be myself and I can, like Rousseau thought, just have the freedom to, again, be who I want to be, gratify my own desire, self-gratification, not a place to be conformed. So there's common grace in upbringing. There's common grace in how you're parented. There's common grace in where you go to school. There's common grace on on your own personal uh, natural giftings. Those who are born with higher IQs and, 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 a, and a better intellect are going to experience more common grace things in reality in this life. That's just, that's just the way it is. Think about your professional athletes in America. Just by their genetics and by their bodies that they are given by God, they have the potential of making millions of dollars in athletics. I don't have that potential. I don't have that common grace gift. And that's okay. So we see all these uh, different means of common grace in the world. I want to quote Kuiper here on, on upbringing. Uh, here's what Kuiper says. If we are born in a group that is in the habit of banishing its small children to hired ch- child care, so that the mother may rest and the father not be bothered, our first formation was left to hired help, who could be damaging and who, in any case, did not foster natural ties. On the other hand, if we are born in a group where the rule is that the mother is in the first place mother and only secondarily the one who governs the affairs of the household, then we have experienced being cherished by motherly love since childhood. 
and the natural ties in us have been strengthened. I love that quote. It's a common grace thing. If, you're, if your mom nurtured you and cared for you when you were a baby and when you were being, uh, when you were growing up as a toddler and as a child, instead of being given to the daycare, secondary help, hired, ha- hired help, it's a wonderful thing when a mother cares for their own child. Another common grace thing is work and vocation. So there are some vocations, there are some careers, there are some jobs that have more common grace than others. Some jobs are hard and are more of a burden to do. Uh, Others are more, I I don't want to say easy, but, you know, you're not sweating and, you know, you're not uh, breaking your back to just you know, make ends meet. But again, as we think about common grace as both just general favor, but again, primarily a a restraint of sin, uh, we, we know that vocation and jobs and work restrains sin. I want to quote Kuiper again. He says it wonderfully here. He says, work is the preventative means against the dominion of sin in our heart. Hard work often takes away the time to ponder sinning and to think about sin. Someone who had the fortune of being obligated to work hard from his youth received in that obligation an uncommon gift of common grace. And parents, guardians, and teachers who allow their children, wards, or students to hang around and mess about, as we might refer to this ugly idleness, and do not accustom them from early on to do regular work are guilty not only of wasting their children's future but also contributing to their moral deterioration. The discipline to which the poet of Proverbs continually points is not least of all the discipline of regular work, and anyone who loves himself in the loftier sense will thank God, not when he has nothing to do, but when he is busy, for hard work is a shield against evil. That is incredible. Again, a phenomenal quote by Kuiper. So think of your job as common grace. It is. It restrains sin in you. It gives you something to do. It, it, it occupies your time so that you don't just fall into pits of sin. Yes, can your work become an idol? Yes, yes, certainly anything can. Our hearts are idol factories, as, as Calvin says. But work is, is, is fundamentally a good thing. God created man to work, to be busy, to cultivate the earth to have something to do, to, to have dominion over the creation. So, work and vocation is common grace. Now, yes, there are exceptions again. Uh, there are some careers and vocations that are just plainly sinful. Say if you're, uh, I mean, I think most clearly of like, say your work is that of a porn star. Yeah. <laughs> that's not common grace. You are your work is not restraining sin. It's it's prolif- proliferating sin in your life. So, yes, certain vocations, so to speak, are entirely sinful in every way, but most are not. So, vocation, common grace, a means of common grace. Now, Kuiper mentioned Proverbs again. What did he say? The discipline to which the poet of Proverbs continually points is not least of all the discipline of regular work. This brings up an interesting thing. And now if you were to think about this hard enough, think about common grace hard enough and, 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 and the means of common grace hard enough, 
you would come to the conclusion that the Word of God, the Bible, is a means of common grace to the non-believer. Now, that should strike you, that statement should hit you as odd. Why? Well, because the Word of God is the means of special grace, of particular grace, of saving grace. The Word of God is what the Spirit of God uses to save people. To save people. You will not come to salvation unless you hear the gospel. That's what Paul says in Romans 10. We need to interact with the Word of God. It saves us. It sanctifies us. It conforms us to the image of Christ. It is how God produces particular grace in our hearts and in our lives. But it's also a means of common grace. The book of Proverbs is, again, a good example of this. There's common wisdom there that can be applied by anyone and it will produce favor and good in their lives. But there's other evidences in Scripture where we can see that the Word of God is a means of common grace. One of those passages is Hebrews 6, 4-6. through 6. Now, this is a passage that has been used often to try to prove that somebody can lose their salvation. This is usually the go-to passage for Arminians who want to try to argue against perseverance of the saints. Um, and starting in verse 4 of chapter 6... It says, for it is impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So they say, well... Those things right there, I've tasted the heavenly gift, have been enlightened, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Certainly, certainly that's describing someone who is saved. Certainly, that's the argument. And and it seems like that, like, wow, that's kind of a crazy verse. But then if you continue to read verse 7 now, for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receive a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and, in it, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. There's the key verse right there, verse 9. So, all those things just described... That sound as though the author is speaking about somebody who was saved. Those things did not belong to, to salvation. He's saying we, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. These things did not belong to salvation. But certainly they were of benefit to somebody. That's, this is the whole point here. This person, this non-believer, though they have not experienced particular saving grace, they're still experiencing something from the Word of God. They're still sharing in the Holy Spirit in some way. They're not indwelled and, and sealed and regenerated by the Holy Spirit, but they're still experiencing the work of this Holy Spirit. Man, think about somebody. Think about Judas. Again, this is the, this is the example. You have to keep going back to think of Judas. 
think of the benefit that he received by being one of the 12 disciples of Jesus Christ. He got to walk side by side with God. He lived intimately with God for three years. And he saw miracles. He heard the word of God as Jesus spoke. Every time Jesus spoke to Jesus, he heard the very word of God. And there is, obviously, it's assumed there's great benefit to being by Jesus' side. Man, unbelievable. He saw demons subdued and rebuked. He, He saw people raised from the dead. And yet he rejected it. And if we take this verse as it says, it's impossible for such a man to be restored to repentance. That's a scary thing. But this person, this non-believer, the word of God wasn't a means of saving grace to them, otherwise they would have been saved. So what was it? Well, common grace. Any benefit they received from reading the Bible putting into practice the things that it says, any benefit that they receive from living in the community of the saints, a non-believer who who has everybody duped and is a member of a good Bible-believing church, man, they're going to receive benefit. They're going to receive the love of the saints, even though they themselves aren't a saint. The care of the saints, the fellowship of the saints, people who are there for them, who pray for them. I mean, that's common grace. So the word of God and the church of God is an incredible means of common grace in this world. There's a lot more to be said about that. So word of God is a means of common grace to the non-believer. And you, you, again, this is just intuitive too. Think of the Ten Commandments. That's inspired scripture. If you apply, if you obey, again, externally, superficially, if you obey the Ten Commandments, you will benefit from it. To not covet your neighbor's property. To not murder. All these things. That will benefit you. To not lie. To not steal. That will benefit your life. To be a person of virtue. Again, externally at least. It still has benefit for your life. Again, like I said earlier. To to refrain from sexual immorality. To flee from it as a non-believer. That will benefit your life. To work hard as a non-believer. will benefit your life. All these things. So, let's think about the church for a moment. You know, if you've done any traveling in your life and have been around the world at all, um, and you don't even need to travel or be around the world to know this because we have TV and, you know, media and whatever. We can see what other parts of the world look like. Uh we know that there are many places in this world where people are starving and they do not have access to what we would consider just normal things in the American life. I mean, you you take for granted access to just a regular working toilet with toilet paper. And then you go overseas to these places and there's there's no there's no public rest. There's no bathrooms anywhere. There's a hole in the ground somewhere and there's nothing to, to, you know, clean up with afterwards. Like, that's just the norm. 
And you just take it for granted. You take for granted clean drinking water. I can turn on the faucet anywhere and get clean drinking water, not fear that I'm going to get a parasite and die. And so you go overseas and you have to you have to plan to go buy a bunch of bottled water at a at a grocery store and stock up so you have water. You don't you don't think about that here. And so on and, and so on and all these things and and you know the average size of of of, of house in some of these countries. It's just a room for a whole family. and I don't want to say that to like condemn America. Often I think we f- Americans can fall into a ditch where they think that having nice clothes and having a, a decent house and eating and having you know meals all the time and not ever having to go without food is somehow a bad thing. Uh, no, certainly... Everybody is called to give thanks to God for everything that they have is from God. It is still gracious. But the state of America isn't it isn't just like that naturally. It's not like there's just something in, inherent about the land of America that produces this. No. No. What was Western civilization built on? It was really built on Christianity, Christian morals. Christian work ethic, a Christian view of government and governmental control, a Christian view of education, a Christian view of, of medicine, all these things. Western civilization is what it is because of Christianity. We know this. Who are the people that started the universities? Christians. Christians. Who are the people that that founded our first hospitals and and produced uh, and, and pursued um, you know medicine and all these things? Christians. So the non-believer who has all these luxuries in life, again specifically thinking about Western civilization in America, it's due to the it's due to Christians. I'm not. It just flat out is. There's no other way to look at it. Study history. It's as clear as as clear as day. And so the church, I'll say it, the church speaking collectively of the body of saints that live around the world, the church is a source of common grace to the, the non-believing world. We are a light on a hill. We are the salt of the earth. Where Christians are, there will be good things to follow and people will benefit from it. You look at these countries like Venezuela, rich with resources, oil, Precious metals. I mean, lumber up the wazoo. All these resources. They should be rich. Their people should live in luxury. Why are they starving? Why are they in poverty? Because their governmental system is socialist. You will never derive a socialistic governmental system from scripture. Private property is, is, is a presupposition in scripture. Ten Commandments, do not steal. Well, it's implied that people own things and it's their right to have them. And if you take it from them, that's stealing. Do not steal. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's ox. You know, don't covet your neighbor's property. He has things that are his and to even desire them is sinful. It's not all, It's not just generally owned by some governmental system and they have they, they own everything and Blah, 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 blah. This isn't Marxism. This isn't communism. This isn't socialism. No. So those countries who have been built on on that view where 
Private property is a is a reality. Freedom of speech is a reality. Religious liberty is a reality. Those places flourish. It's not rocket science. It really isn't rocket science. And what are those things due to? What do those things stem out of those beliefs of government, of speech? They stem out of Christianity. They stem out of Christianity. So the church, the scriptures, Christian values are a source of common grace. The non-believer benefits from them. God shows favor to the non-believer by, uh, by just being in the presence of, of, of his people, by living around people who are saved and who believe the Bible and put the Bible into practice. It's, it's an incredible source of common grace. So that will wrap up this episode again as we think about means of common grace. Just as a quick recap, one, keep in mind, your body, this world, is, is, has a built-in common grace potential. God made it that you could take ibuprofen and re- your headache goes away. That's an incredible thing. That's common grace. He didn't have to do that, but he did. Um, your upbringing, your genealogy, who your parents are, your education, your work, your vocation, all these are common grace realities. That may be greater and may be lesser depending on, you know, whatever it is, depending on your parents, depending on your your upbringing. Uh, finally, the scriptures themselves, though the primary source of particular particular grace, are also a source of common grace to the non-believer when applied. And the church itself and the saints and what stems out of Christian values is also a, a tremendous source of common grace in this world. There's so much more to be said about how the church is a means of common grace, and maybe another episode. In another episode, I'll, I'll flesh that out more. There's a lot more to be said about it, but I do want to try to get into government more specifically because it's just so relevant right now. Uh, but nonetheless, again, now that you're starting to. Uh, think more about common grace you're going to start seeing it everywhere everywhere and even in scripture you'll start to see it everywhere as well so hopefully you again learn something and and have benefited in some way from these episodes but thanks for listening uh i would really appreciate if you would leave a rating um on apple Podcasts or whatever you listen to uh, it helps with discoverability So again, thanks for listening and tune in to the next episode of the Preach to Persuade podcast. Bye.